begin today's episode. We open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. David still faces danger and deception as he flees from Saul's murderous rage. He deceives a priest into thinking that he's on a secret mission from the king so that he can get some food. He also ends up with a very special sword. But David's plan begins to unravel as a spy sees him and reports the situation to Saul. David then flees to Gath, who then pretends to be insane to escape from the Philistines. All of that today. Good morning and blessed Ascension Tide. Today is Friday, May 26th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We give thanks to God for the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support the program. LHF is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages, and you can visit them to learn more online at lhfmissions.org. Well, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's the Reverend Stephen Tice. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning to you too, sir. It's a joy to hear your voice again. How well, you, been? you too. I, I pray that things have been going well. We're, uh, I guess this is, what, the next to last day of Ascension Tide. Uh, it's going to be yes, Pentecost this weekend. Yes, we will. We will celebrate our gift of the Spirit poured out in the Word and the sacraments. Happens that we're observing Mission Sunday at at New Wells tomorrow on Sunday, and we also happen to have a baptism. So we're able to focus on those elements all at one time. Wow, that's all kinds of good things going on, and what an appropriate time to talk about missions and, well, even have a baptism on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is such an important festival in the Church because it marks that, as you already pointed out, that, that amazing gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. Um, I think sometimes it it goes by without as much fanfare as perhaps it deserves, but we, we recognize it historically for a very important reason. Um, of course, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us faith and livens our faith through the Word and sacraments, and and um, yeah, so it's the foundation for our whole Christian life is this, this gift of the third person that uh, the Father and Son give us. That's what we have, and that's what we continue to, to focus on sharing with others is what God gives us. It's, that's why we have... Thy Strong Word is a, is a Bible study class. It's to focus on what God gave, not not what we know or not what we do, but what God does. So, Absolutely, and we pray today that the, the Holy Spirit will open our hearts and minds to learn that which He would have us know from our text in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Um, but, you know, since we're appealing to the Holy Spirit to guide our ways in what we say today, perhaps we should do so in prayer. I invite you, of course, brother, to lead us in that prayer. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and gracious God, you give to us your gifts for our benefit, that we might share them with others as well as receive them for ourselves. As we consider your word today, we ask that you guide and direct us to see Jesus in these words and to see how we, as your people, are called to walk in your truth. Lord, we know that at times... Some things in Scripture puzzle us or confuse us. There are things that you don't tell us in your word that sometimes we want to know, but you've determined we don't need to. Help us today 
to find that which you want us to see. Be with those who search your word all the time. And in this season of Ascension Tide, Lord, we ask that you help us to focus our eyes on things that are above. As things around us in the world become distracting or aggravating or even threatening, remind us that our Savior is with us all of the days to the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, brother. Well, this has been a pretty exciting portion of Scripture as David is on the run from Saul. Saul wants to murder him. And Saul's, you know, he's slowly descending into a a madness of sorts. Uh, Certainly some Mm -hmm. jealousy over, over David's position, his anointing as the future king. And so we, we meet up with David on the run in this chapter. But yesterday we talked about um, David and Jonathan and their relationship. And um, you want to cover a little bit about what we might have been already talking about before we dive into what we're going to discuss this morning? Yes, absolutely. We have this relationship between David and Jonathan that they were brothers-in-law, but they were actually more brothers in spirit, and both of them desired what God wanted. And we see that repeatedly in the conversations that David and Jonathan have, but also that Jonathan has with his father. And as we look at that, we realize that this is a true friendship that looks for the good of the other first. And this will play out later when David becomes king and one of Jonathan's descendants is in physical need David fulfills a promise he makes to him. But as we look at this, we also see that the Lord's anointed is always the one that receives the Lord's support until the Lord's anointed says, I reject you and go my own way, which is what happened with Saul. And so what Jonathan has done, he's made arrangements with his friend David to send him a message by code, arrow distance code, if you will. Long distance go away, short distance come close. And uh, David now knows he he's in danger of going back, going into danger, into a injury, perhaps death, if he goes back to the palace. So instead, he heads off bluntly into the wilderness, if you will. And so we have the hunting of, of David by Saul and David's continued respect for the office of the anointed king, though he himself has been anointed as successor. And that plays out in the coming chapters as well. So we see that God's at work using his servant to accomplish God's purpose. And as long as the servant of God seeks the word of God, the word works. It's when we go a different way that we have trouble. doesn't matter whether we're king of Israel or pastor or bartender. doesn't matter what you're doing. If if you don't go to the word of the Lord, you end up going in the wrong direction. Something for us to keep in mind, and and you're right. We see this relationship between Saul and, pardon me, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. But you know, it is one where both are appealing to the Lord's will, which is what sets Jonathan apart from Saul, and certainly David apart. But we also see them act in ways that I think we sometimes struggle with, and we're going to see that a little bit in today's text because there, there, we know that the Lord calls us to be honest and to speak well of others and and to put the best construction on things as we Lutherans might say but what we what we've seen so far and what we're going to see today is God's people using deception in order to protect life 
And I think that's one that weighs heavy on the hearts of people because certainly God, you know, despises lies and falsehood. And yet we're going to see David uh, lying today or deceiving. And I'm interested to hear the I don't want to say the word spin, but I'm interested to see how we reconcile that to God's will. But I think we might as well get into the text. This is going to be chapter 21, starting with the first verse. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, and I'm just going to read through verse 6. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to David, trembling. And he said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the holy bread of the presence, which is removed from before Yahweh to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So just stopping just for a moment there, right? Let's, t- let's head back to the top. David heads mm-hmm. to Nob. He runs into the priest, and uh, he tells him he's on a secret mission. Uh, Pastor, flesh this out for us. You know, I-, I guess paint the scene. What's going on? Okay, as I mentioned earlier, we had Jonathan and David uh, with a, a secret code. Uh, Jonathan says to his friend, if I shoot the arrow long distance and tell my... my uh, retriever of arrows my servant boy the arrow is too far past you don't go it don't get it come back to me that means you should leave so outside the city of jerusalem jonathan has sent out the message to leave so david heads to the east from the city of jerusalem to a place where ahimelech has apparently apparently the tabernacle is there if it's not there um, at least it's close enough that the bread of the presence of god that's replaced most likely what was sitting in the tabernacle is there waiting to be consumed. Um, But one way or the other, it's just a little bit east of Jerusalem, so he's literally running for his life. And as he arrives at this place, he says, uh, the the priest comes to meet him and says, why are you alone? And why, why isn't no one with you? And notice the priest is trembling. So he's afraid that perhaps David, who has killed his 10,000s, as the chant went, of Philistines, is, is now endangering Ahimelech. Of course he's not, but the, the priest doesn't know for sure what the purpose of his coming is. And if the priest himself also knows that Saul has been come, become somewhat unbalanced, I would imagine Samuel has still had some interaction with these priests prior, prior to uh, his death. That, that there's going to be a time when he is going to know that there's a danger involved with Saul and if David's his messenger. But now David comes up and says, no, I, I'm here on a secret mission, but it's not against you. Don't tell anybody what I'm doing. So 
I've got a group of guys I have to meet, but we're out of food on a special mission. And and um, the truth of the matter, he is on a special mission, and Yahweh has sent him out to save his life, as opposed to Saul the king. Now, he never once says, Saul has sent me. He says, the king has sent me. Okay? Mm. And when you, when you go back to the Old Testament, look carefully. The ruler of Israel is referred to by Yahweh as his prince, and that God himself is the king of Israel. So, in a, in a technical sense, it's sort of like Jerusalem uh, is, is referred to in the New Testament in a variety of ways, but when uh, Dr. Jeff Gibbs points out the, uh, the reference, and, and so does um, Dr. Lewis Brighton, the reference that when Christ rose from the dead, there was a great earthquake, and many of the dead rose from their ground and appeared in the holy city. And a lot of people say, well, why didn't we find reference of dead people walking through Jerusalem? It doesn't say Jerusalem. It says the holy city. And here he doesn't say Saul. He says the king. Sometimes, sometimes we have to be careful not to say what the text doesn't say. David does not say Saul sent me. He said the king sent me. So in, in one sense, yes, it, it's a type of, of deception, but it's also not speaking a lie because God has sent him away to be safe and now he's going with these young men who he's made appointment with to hide in the wilderness. How much of that is my supposition is a good question, but at least <laughs> at least when I look at it, I can certainly say that the word king here does not mean Saul. Well, I, I definitely have asked you to reconcile uh, you know, reconcile it and you have and I and I've heard that explanation before. I'm I'm not as sold, but I think I think it definitely is something that we can consider and make sense. The, the one thing, and I mentioned, I think this with a couple guests ago. One thing I always want to be careful about is that we don't take, and I know you do too, brother, but that, that we don't take like because he's David somehow he cannot lie because we know he can. Oh lie. no, sure. Yeah, I mean he he can murder, so he can lie. <laughs> yep. Um, and, uh, but and, but at the same time, I, I do like what you're saying. I, I would say that, you know, um, even if it weren't technically a lie, which is kind of how my teenagers operate, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, mm -hmm. it's deception by being um, explicitly uh, clear, but not letting me know about the, the, the explicit. What do they call that? They call yeah. it um, uh, when you comply, malicious compliance, right? It, they, oh, it says go. something that's exactly true, but... It's only true if you understand the way in which I'm saying it. But I would yeah. say there is a little bit of deception going on here. But I like that argument. You know, the king, but, but still, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, don't tell anybody of which I sent you. Obviously, Ahimelech understands that to be King Saul, though, whether, whether David uh, is saying King Saul, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, at one level, that the name Ahimelech, means uh, brother of the king, or the king is my brother. Um, oh, yeah. So, so you know, this is, he's not a physical brother to Saul, but, but at the same right. time... Right, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he has another yeah. name, too, that he goes by... Oh, gosh, what is it? I've... Uh, Ahijah, or something like that. He's mm -hmm. going to be called that, too. But, yeah, I like that, which is it makes it even more interesting why he's described here with this name, Ahimelech. Yeah, I, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but so he goes basically, regardless of, of of how he's convincing this priest that essentially he's not there to 
you know, judge him um, or sure. exercise any sort of punishment. But he says, I'm hungry. And I got some men coming and they're hungry. And he asks for five loaves of bread. Um, what's the problem? Why can't the priest just give him some bread? What is this show bread or holy bread as it's described here? Uh, how, how might we explain that? Because certainly we don't yeah. have these same ceremonial, mm -hmm. um, I guess, uh, uh, rules or laws that God had, but there were plenty back then. We read through a lot of them when we studied Exodus. So, yeah. you know, you talked about the tabernacle. Clearly it's nearby, uh, but there are some requirements here for this show bread or this holy bread. Yeah, and, and this, this bread, this, this Kodesh bread, is, is set aside. It's, it's consecrated for a purpose. And I think uh, two things that jumped out at me, obviously, is we have the bread of the presence, and, and uh, we can get into great detail about something that isn't stated here, but is at least mildly implied. The bread indicates that God is present with his people and that they are eating in his presence. Behold, I set a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Uh, there's that element of the Psalms. Uh, and then when we look at what the bread was for, it was to show and remind the people, because physically it was there in the temple, that God communes with his people. God provides for them, and God eats with them. He is not ashamed of them. He took the elders up on Mount Sinai, and they had a meal there on the, on the side of the mountain, and none of them were killed. I mean, it's explicitly stated that they ate in the Lord's presence and lived. So the presence of the bread, or the bread of the presence, either way you say that, means that God has given approval to his people. Now, the, the priests are specifically required to care for the bread, replace it, add the frankincense to it as part of an incense savor, and then when they replace it every seven days, new bread is brought on the Sabbath, the other bread's taken away, and then to be consumed by the priests. And that's, that's what he's talking about here. What I find very striking is David specifically asks for five loaves. Now, he doesn't ask for two fish, but he does ask for five loaves. Right. And so there's an there's a indication here. Again, this is one of the things that I always recognize in my own reading of Scripture, and, and I have to be careful I don't overdo it, but on the other hand, I better make sure I do it. Where is Jesus in this text? And see, what we have here are references to Jesus himself so that the bread of the presence, just as much as in that time it symbolized God was with his people, is something that Jesus points back to, probably on the way to Emmaus when he opened the Old Testament to the two disciples and explained to them what it was, and then the 40 days between resurrection and ascension as he, as he taught his disciples. He very possibly could have showed them. The Old Testament, he said, the, the scriptures, testify to me. And so what we see here is a testifying that God will be with his people, God will dine with his people, and that he supports them. And so now David is coming and saying, give God's people support in time of need. So there's, there's that. And then the, old, the other thing is the New Testament reference, that we are a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood, that now we can eat the bread of the presence, and the Lord offers it to us. And, and if you want to go to the Lord's Supper here and talk about that, you can. Um, I don't know that that's specifically where we would go per se, but with the bread of the presence, we at least have to talk about that connection to say that God eats with his people. And now mm -hmm. David is saying, share the gift of life, manna in the wilderness, share the gift of life with those in need. And Jesus says, my 
my bread, my life I give for the world, and I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's not the manna, it's me. And so what's the bread of the presence? It's not the baked loaf. It's the true bread who came down from heaven. Again, right. like I said, I'm finding Jesus in the text. And, and when I do that, that's not going to be here until we get to the New Testament. Right. Well, of course, Jesus himself finds this text in his own teaching. Um, mm-hmm. in, in Matthew 12, he brings up this very event. It's also in, in Mark and Luke, but I just picked Matthew yeah. 12 as an example. Sure. And I'm going to read that because it's worth it. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So David, I mean, sorry, Jesus references David right here. He says, look, mm-hmm. this wasn't technically lawful by the way you look at at the rules and regulations, especially the way the Pharisees applied it. But rather, as you just explained, Pastor, you know, he's he's feeding these people. He is on a mission from the true king. Uh, of course, he's also protecting his own life from the uh, usurping mm-hmm. king whom God has already rejected. Um, but yeah, that's what that's what we see. And I think the other the other thing connected to that is, as you pointed out, is that this is the new covenant that Jesus is instituting, and he's saying the old the old covenant rules were meant to prepare for something greater, and when something greater does show up, which of course Jesus is, the old covenant is now replaced. And we go to the you know the reference that's not here, but it's the blood of the covenant. That shows up in you know, Exodus, and it shows up in the gospel accounts of the uh, consecration of the, of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus presents it to his disciples. And in the book of Hebrews, the term blood of the covenant is tied directly to the authority to replace the old by having fulfilled it, not destroyed it. And this is what Jesus is also getting at when he says these words, something greater has come. And right. so we have a rec- recognizing that the purpose of the showbread was not to restrict the people, but to assure them God was with them. And, and so what we have here is God says, I do it my way. I set aside for my purposes what I call holy, you don't call common. That's what he says to Peter. But for the people of Israel, it's also, you can't do what you wish if you ignore what I say. And so here's what David is saying. You know, he's saying, well, give it. For us, we are clean. We have fulfilled the requirement of how you eat this bread. And if and if we now remain alive by receiving this bread, we will remain holy. And that's you know his argument is is if we don't do the work we're given to do, we can't be holy people for God. So the, uh, the and need, I do th- the I do think it's 
Absolutely. And I do think it's interesting, though, that when the priest is checking to see whether it would be ceremonially appropriate for them to eat it, um, I guess the there's plenty of ways that they could have defiled themselves. But I guess the one he picked was probably the one maybe that they had the most temptation for. And he brings up that they have to have kept themselves from women. And, and David, of course, answers, well, yeah, we're <laughs> it's a bunch of dudes on an expedition. We, we There are no women. Um, yeah. But then he says the vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. What does he mean by that? He's saying that, that these people, because they are in service to God, are living a life that does not offend God's law. And the, the refraining from sexual activity before combat was part of the way of saying we are focused, instead of focusing on, it's going to sound a little bit strange, and you might think it's coming from left field, but it's part of my ongoing discussion and, and reflection on the, the whole issue of, of human sexuality and life that those who are going out to kill cannot have been engaged in attempting to pass on life prior to going to kill. Hmm. That's my interpretation, okay? But, but the focus on purity and sexual abstinence is the recognition that it is the giving of life that God is concerned with, with the gift of sexual identity and reproductive process. Now, because sin has corrupted all that, it doesn't always do what God wants, but when it comes to interacting with God's things, he will maintain the standard that life and death are separated. Now, that's my personal interpretation. Yeah, but, you know, I think it's a very interesting one, and not really one I've heard before, not that that makes it suspect in any way. Typically what we hear is um, kind of like athletes might not engage in sexual activity before a game or something like that. Mm -hmm. it, it's about conserving resources and keeping focus and frankly, keeping testosterone levels high, too. And so people have always seen it from a very practical point of view. You know, you don't want your soldiers um, not ready to fight with that same the same types of <laughs> chemical things that go on in one's brain. Um, but yeah. I, but obviously, I think the way you're looking at it makes me pause and say, hey, maybe I want to think about this a little further. Maybe it's not just worth saying, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's what they did. Um, mm -hmm. And it also, your explanation, I think, also helps us understand why the priest might have picked that one thing out of the many things that would have, been, uh, you know, disqualified them. Yeah, and this is uh, part of part of the service of the priesthood. When you think about it, what were they to do before they served and ate the bread? You know, there's there's qualifications for being ready to eat, um, which in the old covenant applied, and in the new covenant, because Christ and His bride, the Church, have a, a fulfilled relationship there's all kinds of old rules that aren't needed anymore but that that's like i said that's a very a very extensive topic and i we don't have any time to go there today <laughs> sure sure <laughs> well in fact uh, it's probably a good time to pause anyway because we're really close to our break so we'll go ahead and take that break folks don't go anywhere when we come back pastor tice and i will keep on going through first samuel 21 see you on the other side
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Stephen Tice. He's pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. But before we get back to the text, I just want to thank you for joining us and gathering around God's Word with us this morning. If you know someone who also might benefit from our program, be sure to let them know that they can tune in in so many different ways. If they're in the St. Louis area, they can listen live on AM850 or they can stream it live or on demand at their convenience at kfuo.org. They can also hear the program as a podcast or on KFUO's own mobile app, which uh, I think is the best way to do it because you get access not only to Thy Strong Word, but a lot, if not all, of KFUO's programming. Uh, and you know what? Another great way to tune in, and I've been mentioning it the past few shows, but I just think it's very neat, and this is what I've been doing lately. You can ask your smart speaker to just tune into KFUO Radio. And it does. And as always, of course, you can reach out to me. I'll answer any questions you have or hear your feedback. My email is pastorboo at gmail.com, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook at uh, Phil Boo. Just drop by, say hello. Thanks for listening today. Let's get back to our text. Uh, Pastor, you know, before the break, we were just, you know, finishing up this idea that the priest is giving the showbread to David to help feed his men, and it explains a little bit here that, you know, there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before Yahweh, to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it's taken away. Um, Just a couple more things about that. I just wanted to uh, make sure people understood that this was something that they did every day, regularly, right? And then typically, once the fresh bread would be put out, the other bread primarily would be eaten by the priests who served the altar. Yeah. That was part of God's instruction. Am I right about that? Yeah, that was, they, well, the, they would replace it on the seventh day. It was new bread brought out on the seventh ah, day. Ah, got it. So they, there may have been some left over from the previous time, and then they would the priests would eat it as they were hungry or as part of their regular meal process. And I think you use the word showbread, sometimes with a translation, bread of the presence, it's always fascinating to me when we translate Hebrew that we sometimes miss the bluntness of the Hebrew language. This is the bread of the faith, is literally what it says. Oh, okay. And so it's it's the bread of the face of God. Wow, I like that. The bread of the face. Yeah, you know, there's so many Hebrew colloquialisms that I wish that they were sometimes written more woodenly, kind of like the, the Hebrew phrase, you know, his nose burned. Uh, meaning yeah. that he was angry, or all the times it talks about, you know, walking before the face of God. And yeah, these things get translated into more common or, or technically more understandable English, but you're right, we lose something mm-hmm. there. And yeah. um, and the, the bread of the face of God, that certainly is something that really helps drive home that this consecrated bread is where where God 
um, in this case, is symbolically found, and in the New Testament, God is literally found, Christ's true body and blood, in the consecrated bread on the altar. Mm -hmm. Yep, this is, and, and again, this is, like I said, Jesus telling his disciples, search the scriptures, they testify about me, and here's one of those places right. that does that. Well, I'll tell you what, let's read a couple more verses, because, well, something happens next, starting with verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before Yahweh. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Let's pause there. So <laughs> we're introduced just barely briefly to Doeg the Edomite, um, mm -hmm. We actually don't really get what he does until the next chapter, but basically this guy's going to run back to Saul and and tattle <laughs> on on David. Yeah, yeah. and the, and the the thing that we're not told is why he's there, detained before the Lord is the phrase that's used here, and and in the process of of Doeg's activity, he is a witness to what's going on, and and I won't say he's a secret witness because clearly he was being kept there. Um, but the thing is, he's an Edomite, which by definition means he's not part of the people of Israel. Therefore, right. he is a descendant from Esau. And the Edomites didn't even want the Israelites to pass through their land on the way out of, of Egypt and the wilderness, even though they offered to pay if any of their livestock would eat or drink from the water. And the Edomites, the descendants, the, the relatives, family members, you know, a couple hundred years back before anybody remembers it, but um, they said... Yeah, we, we don't want you here. We'll come out with the army. And so the Lord says, okay, we'll go around. Well, here's Doeg, and he's standing in the way. He's, he's obstructing. Uh, and, and so he doesn't want David to go through, literally, in safety, so later he'll deal with that. But, but he's identified because he will play a part in what happens in the coming chapters when David is in the wilderness and what happens with him. But the other thing you mentioned here is the the uh, the only weapon available is the conquered uh, hero of the Philistines, whom David conquered, the booty from the battle, if you will, um, is is kept in the house of the Lord, because God delivered Goliath into the hands of David with the slingshot, and that's literally what David said to him. He said, "I come out to you because Yahweh Himself will give me victory over you." And so the proof that Yahweh does that is the sword David conquered in combat, and that was one of those ancient practices, if you defeated someone in combat, you got their weapon to prove you'd done it. David didn't get it. Yahweh got it. And now Yahweh's passing it back to David in a time of need. The Lord supplies the needs of his people at the right time. You know, we don't have inflection here, but, you know, when the priest says, uh, you know, well, the gosh, the only weapon we have is, um, is this sword. It's, it's, we have nothing like that, but, you know, there's nothing but that here. And David says, there is none like that. And I, and I feel like what's left out is anywhere. Like, that's perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, sure, I'll take that. Give it to me. Um, 
I also want to point out, like you, I don't want to read too much into it. I, I'm careful about that. But back to Doeg just for a second. You know, he's the chief of Saul's herdsmen. You mentioned he was an Edomite, descendant from Saul. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> Esau. Um, a servant of Saul, which sort of is language that indicates that in this context he's a bad guy. Uh, but here we have David, the, the shepherd of Israel, who will point forward to the good shepherd. And yet Saul, the current king, leaves the Lord's flock, so to speak, under the head of a foreigner, um, of someone who's not of the people. Again, not reading too much into it, but certainly we see just another little indication about how David is going to be different than Saul. Yeah, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is for the the people of Israel, when they heard these things read publicly, when they heard them recounted, they'd make the immediate connection. Because they they walked past herds all the time. So, you know, there's an impact immediately that we won't get culturally. But for the people of Israel at the time, the thing you just noted probably was pretty clear to them. Yeah. Well, I write, so let's keep on going. So we, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter because at that point, after he gets the sword of uh, Goliath, he reclaims that, uh, he flees again. Verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Ashish, or Akish, said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Ashish or Akish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Ashish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Well, there's a lot of things that stand out. But, uh, you know, David flees to the, the, the land of his enemies, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're bringing it up to the—I just can't help but laugh because they're bringing it up to the king— like, isn't this the guy that they were singing how Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Among all the other reasons why that's problematic for David, uh, I bet David's sick of hearing this <laughs> because that's sort of the reason why Saul turned against him in the first place. This 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 singing of the women has has haunted uh, uh, our poor David. Uh, it, it seems to be the reason why Saul's against him. And now it's revealing to the king here that David is the one who, of course, conquered their great champion, Goliath. Sure. Yeah, and, and this is, again, the, the issue of keep in mind that David never chanted this, and God never said these words. These are the people right. of Israel. And, and the kind of reflects for us um, in a kind of a backhanded way what people notice and what people pay attention to. God looks at the heart. You know, when David was anointed, you know, the, the whole process of selecting which son, well, Jesse brought the seven oldest boys along, and Samuel goes through them all and says, no, nope. God says none of these. He's got any more? And he says, well, we left the runt at home, but, you know, he doesn't count for anything. Yeah, you wouldn't want him. Yeah, and that's, that's the point here, that I think when we listen to the chanting, Saul is jealous because the people appreciate David more. David is concerned about who God appreciates or whom God is seeking. 
and, and I don't want to give him a, an elevated status above other believers, but the point is, part of the point, at least, is he is the anointed of the Lord. There is something about that that does make him different. It doesn't make him holy, righteous, and, and perfect, but it makes him different. And so his priorities, because he has a heart for the Lord, are different than those of others. And, and that's clear as we read through the, the text here in First Samuel, that David saw the world differently than Saul did. David saw things differently than others did. Now, later on, he becomes wrapped up in himself after a period of time when he gets involved with Bathsheba and, and as you mentioned, uh, the murder of Uriah. Uh, that's not readily apparent. But when the prophet comes to him with the word, his heart is immediately turned. Right. So, uh, jumping ahead a little bit. But, but he took these words to heart. And, and when, when he said these things, um, you know, David... David said, okay, there's something going on here. I need to pay attention. And, and what's his solution? His solution is not to flee. It's to hide in plain sight. And, and he does that by beginning to act in ways that are, well, incongruous <laughs> with good mental health. Remember, he's running away <laughs> from a guy that's afflicted by evil spirits. Um, sure. So he, he may just have a little bit of background here, but but the one I find interesting, he goes around. Um, he's he's uh, well, marking on the doors. Um, somehow or other, he, he either scratches or or draws or maybe writes in little characters. And, you know, does some graffiti. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's enough that they think he's he's a little unbalanced. And then he allows his physical appearance. The, the saliva ran down on his beard. Now. The thing that comes to my mind, of course, is that to have saliva run down on your beard, you have to have moisture. You have to have saliva. And when Jesus is on the cross, he has no saliva to give. And so his cry is, I thirst. David doesn't mm -hmm. have that issue here. David's issue is his enemies are seen, his enemies are right in his face, and he has a, a way to protect himself by feigning madness so that they'll not want to keep him around, but also probably a little suspicious that they better not attack him because of what he may do. Um, but as we look at, at the beard, you know, the saliva running down on the beard, it reminds me of the, the, uh, the psalm, uh, the joy from the oil dripping down off the beard of Aaron. Um, <laughs> this sure. is not the same thing at all. This, this is a totally kind of different kind of dripping. But, you know, every <laughs> once in a while, my brain makes these little connections where one part of Scripture draws it to another. And, and there's no joy here for David. There's no peace here for David. It's madness. It's hostility. And so instead of oil of the Lord's anointed, it's his own saliva. And, and so he's, he's accused of being a madman, and the king himself says, don't we have enough around here that you had to bring yeah, another I, one? That is my favorite line in this account. You know, do I lack madmen that I need another? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I got plenty of these guys. Um you know, and I don't want to, again, you know, we got to be careful with the text, um, and I haven't looked at it in the Hebrew, but he interestingly enough says, uh, you know, do I lack madmen, which I think is funny, but then have you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, again, I know this is the English translation, but it kind of makes me wonder if um, this king isn't sold on him yeah. being a madman. In fact, mm -hmm. later on, and we're talking like chapter 27, 28, 29, um, we're going to find out that once this guy, this king, finds out that David is uh, an enemy of Saul, 
they actually become um, comrades in arms. He becomes his bodyguard, a trusted ally. But I mean, that's in chapters to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Hebrew, the Hebrew phrase that's used there, term that's used there, can be can be translated with with that concept: play the madman or uh, act as one who is mad, um, as opposed to he is out of his mind, which is what we're told about right. David, Saul. He's tormented by a spirit. Here, the, the, the Hebrew actually supports that idea of of played at or behave or act like a madman. So I think you probably picked up on the fact that the king is not a dummy. No, I, and I don't think so either. And, and not to rehash anything too much, but one thing that we didn't cover, which I think is also compelling, is that when the servants of Akish or Akish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Now, I think that's part—they know— for sure, who the king of their enemy is. They know it's Saul. So mm-hmm. so is this indicating that they somehow know, or it's so well known, that David has been appointed to be the future king of Israel? Or am I, am I reading too much into it? I, I'm, I'm going to guess it probably has more to do with the chant that they were singing, uh, that you know he's killed his 10,000, so that in the eyes of the people of Israel, they would see David as their real leader. And, and where, where does the king go in combat in those days? The king leads in combat. Um, you know, we get to that with David and Bathsheba later in the spring of the year when the kings go out to war, David stays home. Okay? And so when we have the conflict going on, the one who leads in combat was, was seen as the primary, uh, primary soldier, and the king would, would be present and fight. And they've seen David as one who fights. So that might be what they're getting at. But, again, you and I probably aren't going to find that out until Jesus comes back. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And then we won't care, right, <laughs> to be honest? I'm pretty sure it won't <laughs> then matter we'll at be all. Like, yeah, <laughs> well, never mind. We had a question, but, uh, yeah, I'm over it. Oh, Lord. Well, uh, so looking at the rest of this, you know, what else can we learn from this text? And, and you know, how can we apply it to our lives today? Because that's always important. When we look at these texts it's so important for us to understand the historical context. It's incredibly valuable for us to be able to connect these things to Christ in the New Testament. But mm-hmm. also God gives us this to, uh, to also be, uh, um, I guess, a, uh, uh, a witness to us about what we should do. And, and David is certainly a valuable uh, person to imitate in his faith, if not in his sin, of course. We don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think the, the the key thoughts here are that when he when he flees to Nob, Himelech is there. Does David intentionally go seeking the priest? Um, you know, as opposed to it happened to be the next place on the road. We're not told that, but it's uh, we're told he came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. It doesn't say um, he again the the. The temple, the tabernacle in Shiloh had been disrupted and, and attacked, so it was relocation for the people of God. But the, this this man who is carrying around the elements of worship and also holding on to the the sword of Goliath, there's there's a a connection when you think about it that Goliath's sword was meant to destroy the people of Israel, and now David takes this sword and refuses to kill the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed when he has the chance. So he puts the sword to its proper use. And, of course, being a, being a Lutheran pastor, I, I get 
stuck with this problem of always remembering things I was taught over the years, uh, that, that I have to be careful I'm not inflecting or reinserting things that don't fit where they belong. But we have the sword of the spirit, which is uh, you know, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to cut between the bone and the marrow, or the joint and the marrow specifically. And, and so I'm, I'm reminded that the proper use of the, the word of God is to comfort the afflicted and then to to crush the the uh, hard-hearted. And so David now is taking on the role of one who wields this sword, but he will not destroy. That's up to the Lord to get vengeance. He's not going to get even with Saul, even though Saul's out to get him. But he will attack the enemies of God's people who ridicule the name of the Lord. And so as I look at the life of David and the role of this sword of Goliath, it shows up as a clear distinction between how one applies law and how one applies gospel. Even though it's it's seen usually as an instrument of of the law, it's also a tool for defense. And now David is using it for defense. So he's, he's taking on the role of one who defends the people of God as he defends himself, the Lord's anointed next king. But he's also one then who is going to be struggling with how to do that properly. And and as you and I walk through daily life, and as Christians struggle with, okay, what, we look at the government, how is the government operating? Well, it's not anointed by the Lord. But it is the Lord's servant for our good. I mean, Paul's explicit about that. So when the, the government does something that doesn't agree with the word of God, we have to be clear that we say that can't be supported by God's word. And when it's neither referred to with praise or condemned in the Word of God, we have to be very careful. We don't take a, a righteous attitude toward that which Scripture hasn't talked about. And that's a great challenge for me personally. I, you know, I get very frustrated with, with certain behavior patterns, and I have to remind myself that uh, Scripture doesn't talk about this, so I, I have to keep my mouth shut about some things. I don't know about you, but I have that challenge. Oh, yeah. Well, it, and it always is tough to be able to seek after the will of God while also curbing our own sinful desires. You know, I can't help but think about, you know, and this is again later on, but, but David has this opportunity to slay Saul, and the guy that's with him basically says, look, here, look at this perfect opportunity—not Saul. Uh, yeah, Saul. He yeah, said, look Saul. at this perfect opportunity. Saul's sleeping. God has delivered your enemy into your hands. And it would have been very easy for him to discern, okay, yeah, this is the sign that God says it's time. And yet he resists that, follows after God's greater will, respects the office of the king who's trying to kill him. Uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and we certainly struggle with some of those things, even today, maybe in less severe ways. Well, yeah. I um, am so grateful that you were able to join us today. Um, any any last words before we finish up? We're here at the end of the show. Well, I think what, what's interesting to me is we have a reference to the king of, of Gath, and, and that, that country or that city from which, of course, um, Goliath himself had come is, is ruled by one whom is God's representative. We, we often fail to, to recognize that, that governments are, for God's uh, purposes, there to keep order and safety to protect if you know we look live in a different time a different period but you know when when god is having the conversation with abraham about destroying sodom and gomorrah abraham gets them all the way down to 10 righteous people and god says if there are 10 righteous people in that city i won't destroy it now that we can't make that a general application for everything but to recognize that 
not everyone who is under a particular banner is an enemy just because they live in a location. And, and when we look at how we as Christians are called to share the good news with others, we have to recognize that our call is to share the good news so that all receive it. We don't prejudge who will believe and who won't. And at the same time, we clearly distinguish law and gospel. We, we proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. But it's so easy for us to pre-qualify and say, well, that's a waste of time to go there. And, and that person will never listen, so I won't try to bring it. No, that's not our call. And, and here David is going to shelter among the enemy. And we're saying, why is he hiding there? Well, the answer is there's order in that place. And order is placed by God. So every once in a while I stumble on these things that are clear as the nose on my face, and I finally find them. So. And isn't it wonderful when we do? Well, brother, thank you so much. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Stephen Tice, frequent contributor to the program. Always love to have him on. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Have a wonderful and blessed Pentecost, brother. Thank you, and you too. The Lord lift your heart and fill you with his strength. Thank you. Folks, next Friday is our free text First Friday episode. It's the first Friday of June. I can't believe it's June already. And it's interesting that we ended today's topic talking a little bit about the authorities. The topic for this free text First Friday that's coming up is going to be, well, Romans 13, those types of passages, how we as Christians interact with the government, and particularly how we can minister to the authorities. My guest on Friday will be the Reverend Frank Rufato. He's an LCMS pastor and a retired police detective. He's also the director of Peace Officer Ministries and a pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Charleston, West Virginia. So join us for that program. Uh, but don't think that we're going to stop going through 1 Samuel. We're going to keep on going on Monday as David, our fugitive hero, finds refuge in a cave and about 400 men join him. Well, that is, until the prophet Gad tells him to return to Judah. Meanwhile, Saul, our paranoid king, slaughtered those innocent priests who helped David in our text today. But one priest survived, Ahibathar, he's the son of Ahimelech. And, well, he goes and joins David's band. However, David is still distraught, he blames himself for the bloodshed, and of course vows to protect this priest. We're going to hear about all of that and much more on Monday when we come together again around God's Word. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.